0: Before I offer my thoughts this afternoon, I wanted to um, just share something different, and that is that there is a Yiddish saying that the talk of the children in the street is the talk of the parents at home. And sometimes the talk that you hear in the street is the talk of what happens at home. And that happened to me, you may or may not know that my son Michael, who's the rabbi in Vero Beach, and I share a number of families in common, where one family member is a a member of this congregation, and members of his congregation are members of the same family. So word travels in both directions. And when I arrived on Rosh Hashanah morning in Viro, because that's where Donna and I were for the high holidays, everybody from them had spoken from those families to other people in the congregation in Vero to tell me, A, how lovely they heard the services were here and the rabbis in cantor and especially the choir and that you all were sensational. So thank you for the pride and the beautiful way across the state you (laughs) represent our congregation. I remember the phone call like it was yesterday, though it came over 30 years ago. My secretary in Jackson, Mississippi, said that I had a call in Dallas. One of my Dallas rabbis that I grew up with was on the other line. He told me that my father had died suddenly of a heart attack. I was devastated. My dad was my everything. He was my dad, but he was also my best friend, my counselor, my cheerleader, my inspiration, my listening ear. He had great advice but he never gave it, unless I asked him for it. He said he and my mom were the ones, indeed I remember that he and my mom were the ones who encouraged me to become a rabbi. At a time when being a rabbi was so low on the totem pole of careers, that upon hearing of my choice, everybody else asked, what kind of a job is that for a nice Jewish boy? Now all of them, by the way, are becoming rabbis. (laughs) My many talks with my dad over the years about Jewish history, philosophy, Bible, Jewish thought, had convinced me otherwise. He was my inspiration for becoming a rabbi. So my emotional pain over my father's passing was intense. I was especially upset that I had not had the opportunity to say goodbye to him. He had gone for his usual breakfast and trip to the post office and then returned home. He had died behind the wheel of his car sitting in our driveway with the motor running. As I thought about him the next day, I realized that I would never talk to him again, never get to hug him again, or hear his voice again but mostly it was the pain of knowing that we didn't get to tell each other goodbye that still hurt the most i must tell you i was inconsolable and then something happened i could never have anticipated we didn't get to say goodbye or at least my f- but at least my father did in an unanticipated way on both our parts. One almost might say that God intervened. A few days after arriving back to Jackson, a letter came to our house. Those were the days of letters. (laughs) The letter was from my dad. In it were his usual few articles for me to check out for sermons, and then his handwritten note telling me He loved me and signed it as always, Love Pop. It turns out that he had gone to the post office to mail my weekly compliment of reading material and then died upon returning home. So there it was, something I never expected to see again, an unintended gift, and more importantly, a goodbye note from my dad. My emotions were still raw, but that letter gave me incredible momentary emotional comfort. Knowing that my dad was thinking about me only a few minutes before he died meant the world to me and saved me years of a longing I might otherwise have had. In retrospect I realized that acknowledging that gift for what it was and letting it help me made all the difference in the world. Now, what happened two years later constituted a similar source of unanticipated solace. One day, Donna and I were home and we received a call. It was from at and The caller announced as follows. We're calling to let you know that Sam Bernholz, who was my father, has just joined our Reach Out and Touch Someone program. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) And he has just joined as family, and I want you to know that you too can join at a reduced rate. I was stunned. I surely did not know. In s- in so many ways, if I didn't believe in life after death before, I did now. This was better than contacting a medium, and at a cut-rate price to boot. It took me a while to collect my composure as I burst out laughing hysterically, and Donna too. I then informed the salesperson that my father was dead and that it was unlikely that he had just joined the program. <laughs> That's when she admitted she had jo- he had joined two years before and they were just getting around to contacting family <laughs> who might want to join. She apologized and I assured her that she had actually helped me. You see this again, unexpected moment of hilarity had shocked me into realizing that the passage of time had now allowed me to heal enough that I could laugh about what had devastated me only two years before. So there it was again, a surprising intrusion into my mourning that helped to dull the pain just a little. Almost everyone here this afternoon has lost loved ones. For some, their loss is still very, very new, and their grief is overwhelming. They feel lost and lonely. They look everywhere for relief from their pain, but nothing seems to help. Others feel a different kind of pain because their loved ones are facing imminent death. They suffer for the ones they love and for they suffer within themselves. Living in limbo between life and death, their feelings run a gambit of emotions, from fear to uncertainty and then to a kind of uncomfortable resolve. They want to do something to stave off the inevitable, but they know they have no control over what is happening. That sense of helplessness is unbearable. For still others, the morning is no longer so intense. Time has passed and life has taken on a new rhythm. Hardly a day passes that they don't think about their loved ones who have gone. A picture here, a comment there, the missing face that always used to appear at the high holiday meals at the t- table, and the stories we tell about them remind us of those who meant so much to us. We no longer cry every day or feel so deep bereft, but we still sense a void within that will never be filled. So at this hour, we are a community of mourners, and to one extent or another, we look for ways to pass from the anguish of grieving to the comfort, we hope, one day of pleasant memory. Rabbi Ray Zwerin helps us with that passage of emotion by telling an instructive allegory which goes like this. There was once a small boy who banged on a drum all day, every day. He wouldn't stop. Various attempts were made to do something about the noise. One person told him that he would burst his eardrums if he kept up the banging so he needed to stop, but the boy was not persuaded. A second person told him that beating the drum was a sacred activity and should be carried out only on special occasions. But the boy was not impressed. A third person offered the neighbors earplugs so they might tune out the beating of the drum, but that didn't help either. A fourth person gave the boy a book. He said, here, read this. It's about the technique of drum playing. But the boy wasn't interested. A fifth gave the neighbors a book about coping with noise, (laughs) controlling (laughs) anger, and dealing with frustration. But the neighbors didn't see it as their problem. A sixth gave the kid meditation exercises to make him placid, and explained to him that all reality is within. He didn't know what the Sixth was even talking about. (laughs) Eventually, a very wise person came along and provided the key to solving the problem. He handed the kid a hammer and a chisel and asked, I wonder what's inside the drum? And with that, the drum beating very quickly ceased. (laughs) One interpretation of that allegory is that sometimes you have to trick the drummer if you want to eliminate the source of the painful noise. And as Rabbi Zwerin points out in his words, we are all drummers, you and I. Our grief is the raucous rancor that beats within us. Day by day and often in the evening hours, we are beside ourselves with grief, beating out its staccato, numbing noise against our inner self. My question, and this is mine, is how do we trick the drummer to stop beating the drum of such deep sorrow when the beating of the drum comes directly from within us? Is Rabbi Zwerin suggesting that we should play tricks on our thoughts and emotions to make the pain just a little bit less painful? In a way, yes. Not by denying the pain, but by latching on to unforeseen moments of comfort when they present themselves to us, and by letting these moments ease our anguish, even if it's only temporary. The letter and phone call surprises I received when my father died did that for me. And acknowledging such moments, and we never know when they're going to come, can do that for others as well. Our natural response to grief is to block out such moments. Our sadness leaves us little room for rays of light. But the rays are there if we're willing to let them in. Different people find the rays in different ways. Mary Jelinek described her rays in this way in a book. Her grown daughter Sarah and I were very good friends. We often talked on the phone. When she called me, she always said, Hi, Mom, it's me. And I'd say, Hi, me. How are you today? She often signed her letters, simply me. Then poor Sarah died suddenly of a brain hammer. I was devastated. There can be no worse pain for a parent than to lose a beloved child. So they decided to donate her organs so that much good could come from an otherwise tragic situation. In due time, she writes, I heard from the organ retrieval group telling me where all her organs went. No names were mentioned, of course. but about one year later, I received a beautiful letter from the young man who received her pancreas and kidney. What a difference it made in his life, he wrote. And since he couldn't use his own name, guess how he signed his letter? Me. A coincidence? Maybe. A sign that her daughter somehow lives on? Maybe, maybe not. But does it matter? Isn't all that matters is that Mary Jelinek was able to find a ray of sunshine by allowing herself to believe, even in her midst of travail, that somehow her daughter lived on. No one can take away the pain that comes from mourning our loved ones. No one can mourn for us or shorten the time it takes to heal. Yet we do have the power to choose life over death by being open to the precious gifts of comfort that are open to us and come our way. Those of us who mourn parents and grandparents who died long ago can quiet the din of our drumbeats by telling the next generation about what made our predecessors special and notice, noticing with affection our predecessors' qualities and quirks in ourselves, in our children and maybe grandchildren, and in everyone else they touch. For those who've experienced the death of loved ones more recently or whose loved ones died either tragically or before their time, silencing the drumbeat is all but impossible. There are too many losses within the loss to find comfort anywhere. The Unatona prayer that we recite stating on Rosh, that on Rosh Hashanah it's written and that on Yom Kippur it's sealed who shall live and who shall die only adds to our anger and our sense of unfairness. And yet an opening for some relief is offered in the second half of the Unatona prayer when it says that prayer or in our dying meditation and charity and good deeds lessen the stern degree. You see, survivors often find fulfillment in tackling projects to find cures for disease or doing acts of loving kindness for others. Holocaust survivors who had to choose which of their children would live and which would die often found respite from their guilt by helping children in need after the war. Doing mitzvahs does not bring our loved ones back but it does allow for an occasional parting of the clouds. It's a way of momentarily tricking the drummer. The same can be said for consciously dispelling dispelling two unhelpful notions. One is that we weren't with our loved ones at the end. I hear that all the time. When we think this way, we need to remind ourselves that we were there. We were there for all the years that preceded the end, and that is what really matters. We can also help ourselves by making room beside our anger at life's unfairness for the notion that sometimes we are just unlucky. The work of grieving tragic loss is sometimes so hard that we instinctively gravitate to unremitting anger as our default emotion. There is a place for anger and greeting, but there is also a place for the gradual acceptance of our loss. If again, we are willing to trick the drummer. Finally, for those who face death. Who, finally, for those who face death now, and for their loved ones, people for whom death we know is imminent relief from the agony seems unreachable. Yet even in these circumstances, people have found a way to tune out the noise. Facing certain death from cancer at 40, and she did die after writing about this, BBC British broadcasting presenter Rachel Bland described in many, one of her many blogs the way she coped with her imminent death she wrapped 19 presents containing items that were important to her and that revealed her nature and she gave them to her husband Steve to give to their two-year-old son Steve and Steve in turn was to give their son one age appropriate gift each year on his birthday until he turned 21 On his 21st, he was to receive the one item that was most precious to his mother, Rachel, a bound compilation of her unfinished and unpublished memoir reflecting her fears, her thoughts, her loves, and her concerns And most of all, a heartfelt expression of her love for him. She called her memoir she, called, she wrote in her memoir as follows. No, I'm sorry. She called that memoir, quote, my love letter to my beautiful boy that I hope will leave the imprint of me and my love for him around him forever. She left him a gift. Rachel's farsighted wisdom reminds us that even when we're overwhelmed with grief, we have the option of marching to the beat of our own drum by playing music that can sometimes be comforted and fulfilling even when discordant tones try to drown them out. The secret to it all, as Rachel Bland discovered, lies in giving ourselves away. Giving ourselves away to unexpected moments of comfort to the doing of good deeds, and to find our own living immortality in the hearts of those who will survive us. This lesson is beautifully captured in a poem with which I close. It's found in our Shabbat prayer book. It's called When I Die by Merritt Malloy. It goes like this. When I die, give what's left of me away to children and old men that wait to die. And if you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street beside you. And when you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me and the people I've known or loved. And if you cannot give me away, at least let me live in your eyes and not in your mind. You can love me best by letting hands touch hands and by letting go of children that need to be free. Love doesn't die. People do. So when all that's left of me is love, give me away. Choosing life over death is sometimes very hard But it's when it's the hardest that it makes the greatest difference. Understanding that may help us write ourselves once again into the book of new and ongoing life.